Welcome to our 2021 season of the Miso TV podcast. Miso TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, and it is produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, or Meso Foundation for short, is an organization that provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This 2021 season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkoten. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more about the Miso Foundation and about Miso TV. Today's guests are Dr. Hetty Kindler of the University of Chicago Medicine and Dr. Sanjay Popat of the Royal Marsden Hospital in the UK. Our moderator today is Dr. Marjorie Zotterer of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. This is a really exciting time with new treatment options, um, with the Checkmate 743 data. Um, and I think that the question that comes up a lot for clinicians and for patients and, and other people as part of our community is how do we start to parse it apart um, and decide really who should get what? And the questions that, that we field a lot have to do with, well, should everyone get immunotherapy? who should still get chemo, when should we use bevacizumab, and what about the Optune tumor-treating fields? So I wonder if maybe you could both sort of um, talk to me a little bit about your thought process when you're meeting someone and you're making these decisions for frontline therapy. What, what are sort of the factors and variables you're considering? So um, in UK, it's relatively straightforward because bevacizumab is not approved uh, and it's not reimbursed so the majority that for the majority of patients it's really not even on the menu uh, to have that discussion there are some patients who are privately insured uh, where we have previously had that discussion and uh, I have to say we've been trying to combine it with cisplatin as per the trial data so they have to be a cisplatin eligible patient you know well well enough to cope with um, cisplatin. I've tended to favour it on my uh, non-epithelioid patients before um, because of the multivariable analysis showing the benefit tended to be stronger in that group of uh, uh, patients, but otherwise patients have generally been uh, receiving standard platinum pemetrexid chemotherapy um, with a view to immunotherapy on relapse. And only now where we've started to recently, very recently in the UK, have early pre-label access to immunotherapy, then these issues have started to come up. My, my personal view on 743 is that if you're non-epithelioid, it's a slam dunk really for, for immunotherapy. And, and uh, really, I think there's a very limited role for chemotherapy in that setting if nevo is available. It's much more nuanced in a epithelioid patient because the progression-free survival curves tell a slightly different story um, with a very uh, early 
uh, rate of progression in the first seven months for many patients. Uh, so part of the question is really how secure do they need a response or non-progression within the first seven months? Uh, for some people that are going down a surgical paradigm, I, I still think we don't have enough data on checkpoint inhibitors combining with surgery in a multimodality treatment. So I would very much want to treat those patients with chemotherapy uh, as induction if they, if it, uh, and we also then have much more secure PFS data for for chemo uh, as induction prior to um, surgery. But otherwise, I think it's very unknown pers personally as to you know who to select for um, uh, uh, immunotherapy and who not to. Personally, I think that the data on PDL one is a mess and um, not really easy to read too much into in the frontline setting. I think that summarizes it very well. From my perspective, you know, these are much more complex discussions and sometimes patients really want certainty and you have to provide them with nuance. So, you know, one key question is, is there, is that patient a clearly surgical candidate or not? And that um, will change your paradigm because we don't have sufficient data with immunotherapy in the context of surgery or even whether immunotherapy can replace surgery, but that's a whole nother discussion. But in the patient where we're starting out with treatment, clearly I will look for, are they epithelial or non-epithelial? And I agree in that patient who has pure sarcomatoid or sarcomatoid predominant biphasic histology, they are slam dunk, absolutely no question going to get immunotherapy unless they have certain reasons why I can't such as they have severe autoimmune disease or other reasons why it's simply not feasible. And that's uncommon. Mm. Um, and then um, in the pure epithelial patient, that's the really nuanced discussion. And you know, we will look at um, PDL1 in all of our patients. And I agree, it's, it's a minefield. We don't know the utility of that. But in a PDL1 high, I'm going to be probably more likely to want to offer immunotherapy. And in a PDL10, we're truly going to have that nuanced discussion, epithelial, no PDL1 expression. We have either option. And then if we're going to talk about chemo, it's pemetrexed with cis or carbo, plus or minus bevacizumab. In the US, when we want to give bevacizumab, many um, Insurance companies, at least in our region, will not use will not allow use of it with carboplatin. Even though there's phase two data, there's not phase three data. And then the question is, well, is that patient well enough or you know appropriate to get the toxicities of cisplatin? So just uh, there are multiple different issues. Um, so you know, in general, I'm more inclined to offer immunotherapy when I can, um, simply because of the long-term outcome data. Uh, but patients need to be aware of the less predictable toxicities with immunotherapy, which some of them are not as eager to, to receive. You know, you know when you're going to get nausea, vomiting, lowered blood counts, um, neuropathy, et cetera, with chemo. You don't know when those things might pop up with immunotherapy. That being said, there's a lot of wonderful advertising um, about immunotherapy, and patients have this feeling that this is this magical treatment. And so you have to ground them in reality of what the side effects are, that there are side effects, but that this can offer promise for longer term disease control. And so 
you know, I guess the, the next question I have related to that is, so um, if you give, let's say, an epithelial patient and you have this really nuanced conversation and you make the decision for high PDL one or uh, some other reason and you give them um, ipilimumab and nivolumab for first-line therapy and then at some point they do progress, you know, what, what are you then thinking for second line? Are you going to do a platinum doublet in the second line space? Does everything kind of get shifted back or... Or how do you approach that decision? So in a disease that you, um, you know, still cannot adequately control, we always have to offer clinical trials for patients at any point in time. And so I think that this is an optimal place to offer patients novel clinical trials. Um, that being said, not every patient has access to them. We don't really have great data about what's the best second line setting, uh, treatment in this setting, but it naturally falls to thinking about a platinum doublet as, as certainly an excellent possibility. Uh, there also is further data that came out um, this past year at, at ASCO on the RAMES trial, which was gemcitabine plus or minus ramasurumab, that I think was a sleeper that surprised many of us because it showed a doubling of survival in this patient subset. But were those patients who had previously failed immunotherapy? No. Um, were those patients who had previously received bevacizumab? Don't know. So, you know, where, do, where does that fall? Um, and at least in the U.S., it's really hard to get ramasurumab in the second or third line setting. Occasionally, I can, you know, convince some insurance company, but it's hard. So I think without sufficient data, I think the best data is a, a pemetrexed doublet or triplet, um, but I think we need further exploration to see. And if a clinical trial is available, I think we need to do that at that point because we still need to investigate new therapies. I think that's right. I mean, in, in the UK and most of Europe, ramasurumab is just not available, so that's just not even on the uh, on the agenda, and you know, in, in, like all trials of checkpoint inhibitors, interestingly, the majority of the survival benefit is given by post-progression therapies. Because if you look at the, you know, the survival advantage, it's much bigger for OS than it is for progression-free survival. So, to me, I think post-progression therapies is a really important thing that we need to think about. And my worry is that oncologists are just not going to give it, and mainly because patients won't want to stop their immunotherapy. You know, what we've seen in lung cancer is that we give a first line checkpoint inhibitor and the disease is progressing. We ignore it, say maybe it's just a bit of pseudo progression. We do another scan, it carries on growing, patients feeling good, and we just watch it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then soon the patient is really not very keen on more treatments. It's not or they're not well enough. Right. You know, we have all of these issues. So actually, my concern is that we're going to have patients starting immunotherapy who then progress at some point, maybe they, they respond or maybe they don't respond, but actually they never get to the window of opportunity to get mm -hmm. the in the first place, when actually that's probably what they needed to get the, the real driver of their disease. I think we're going to have to see how this field just plays out over the next year or so. But, you know, we do need to have open discussions with our patients that, yes, we want to start immunotherapy in most of our patients, but actually in many of our patients, it may not be the right drug combination for them. We may need to go down the chemo route thereafter. But I totally take your point, Hedy. This is a really interesting area for research. And actually, when we've got this cohort of patients where we see a response, 
can we consolidate that response after they then relapse? If they've shown that they've got immune sensitive disease, if they relapse within three months, that's a completely different ballgame to relapsing a year and a half down the line, having had a really durable benefit from a checkpoint inhibitor. In that latter patient, I'd be far more interested in a novel checkpoint inhibitor combination in a trial to try and re-synergize uh, some immune control than I would be for, for, for chemo. But, you know, this is an area that we're all learning about together, I think. Well, some of those patients who have discontinued after their two years worth of checkpoint blockade and then who progress uh, can uh, be retreated with those checkpoint inhibitors and again, develop a sustained control. And certainly patients who have been treated with single agent in our experience um, can then uh, and progress can still respond to the doublet. So yeah. we're, we're simply learning all about this. And then of course there comes, what's the role of chemo immunotherapy? And yeah. that's an even more unknown. Uh, there are single arm phase two trials that are very promising. There um, is a phase three trial from Canada that should be reading out shortly and another ongoing international study with Dravalumab that's still ongoing. And then of course you have your studies that you can tell us about. Um, and uh, so, you know, where this will play a role and should that be the optimal treatment for the epithelial patient um, who may need both chemotherapy and immunotherapy, I think that's, you know, a great unknown. I totally agree. I mean, um, you know, this is, this is really where we're, we're, we're learning and moving forward. And, um, I just think it's great to have these trials available with chemo and immunotherapy, and I'm just delighted that we can coordinate all of these globally and work with patient groups and patients themselves really to try and answer these questions. It's, it's going to be really very interesting to see how this field matures. But one concern that I have is that when we now, when, and whenever we have a new treatment in any disease, oftentimes people will adopt that and then move away from clinical trials because, hey, we've got this great treatment, and I think patients need to understand we're not there yet. We're not curing all of our patients. We're not controlling this disease long enough in enough patients. We still need clinical trials. We still need to investigate further. Yeah. No and I, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I could also envision a future where we know better because yeah. of biomarkers who yeah. should get what, right? And I, you know, and I think right now we're all struggling in this nuanced way to find surrogates that improve the statistical probability that we're picking the right thing at the right time. But I can see a future where we maybe know, well, this one needs, this person needs chemo IO, but this one should get double checkpoint inhibitors. And, and I think that we focus a lot on the clinical trials, but I think the part that sometimes doesn't always get conveyed to the patient so well is that we don't ask for these biopsies and blood samples just because we ask for them because they're so important to really um, propel the field forward and, and answer some of these nuanced questions with data. Absolutely. Each patient can teach us more about what to do for the next patient. I think that's really critical, actually, because, you know, in a, in a field where we are giving a lot of extremely expensive drugs, where we're seeing a lot of extremely difficult side effects coming out at a very unpredictable time, we need to do much better at actually uh, identifying which patients uh, benefit uh, the most. So I very much echo everything that you said, Marjorie, is that we we need to completely redouble our efforts to um, be ensuring that we have as much biological outputs for each of the 
translational studies that we're all doing to try and try and get to the bottom of this. Who need who needs the right drug at that particular time point? So, you know, the the only other thing that jumped out to me when when you guys were talking too is I've certainly had situations and and seen other patients treated elsewhere where there's also um, oligo progression after immune therapy. And I just wondered um, how much um, you guys are using perhaps locally um, ablative or local therapies to address a, an isolated lesion, perhaps. We have a whole center of research for oligometastatic disease, and I think that's a really important component. And so your patient has a solitary progression and other disease is still being controlled, you can indeed, you know, use focal radiation or whatever your approach um, for that particular patient to try to ablate that, potentially create an abscapal effect if that exists, and, um, and then continue. Um, and again, if your patient is getting generalized control, but one thing is causing a problem, which one are you going to weigh? Is it more important to just worry about that one guy, or, or do you really want to control the disease in its entirety? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. You, you know, although the data that supports all of this is really pretty thin at best, uh, and actually, what we really need to do is to collect this data and present it. Because you know, we, we in 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 the UK and certainly most of Europe, it's not standard to do to give SBRT to an oligoprogressive uh, uh, lesion, and certainly in the UK, it's not reimbursed. Um, uh, and so we can't really say, look, we have this amount of data to support this practice. I know it happens and we, we do it in insured patients, um, but it'd be really great to, to, to try and collect some of this data to show egg cheat. So if we are going to be controlling this lesion with a local approach, be SPRT, what is the median you know, benefit that we're getting here before we're then needing to change our systemic therapy to, to something else? There, there is a nice data set that's come from our Zurich colleagues uh, on, on SBRT retrospectively. Um, but, you know, otherwise it's, it, it's pretty thin. It's something that I think... Study prospectively. And yeah, absolutely. No, we, we do need to really, you know, uh, um, create that um, scientific environment that we can collect that in. But if I, if I look at what we've done in lung cancer, we're seeing the same things here happening in measles. So we're starting off with checkpoint inhibitors up front. And yeah, we're seeing actually in lung cancer, we're seeing quite high rates of oligoprogression. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in lung cancer, we are treating these with local approaches where reimbursed and feasible, etc. So I see no particular rationale not to do the same thing in, in meso as well. Bearing in mind, we've got a slightly different scenario with the pleura in, in, involved and, um, uh, you know, technical aspects to treating the, the, the diaphragmatic recesses can be uh, challenging. But yeah, I, I, I think that's an area that we just need to collect far more data on really to be very sure that that's the right thing to be doing. And of course, meso is not lung cancer. We can extrapolate, but only so much. And yep. we need to understand that it's still a separate disease, but yep. indeed. And, you know, when you're looking at something as heterogeneous as oligometastases, you really have to also design the prospective studies appropriately because it can be very challenging to interpret. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so where does um, Novacure's Optune TTF uh, fit in? I mean, that's something that, that comes up a lot in my practice, comes up a lot for the foundation. So I, I don't know if either of you have used it or, or what your thoughts are about that device. 
well, it's simple from Europe because it's not approved and not reimbursed. So it's just not even a, a discussion point. And, mm. um, you know, my, my, my personal view on it is I don't think the, the, we have enough data with which to make a decision on whether, whether it's, it's, it's usable or not. But, you know, hey, Eddie and Marjorie, you'll have, you'll have better views on that than I. So it is a single arm trial of a um, technology that requires that a patient have a reasonable functional status to wear this bulky machine and um, a single arm trial that has a very selected patient population. And while the data looks, you know, to the untrained eye rather reasonable, it isn't randomized. And we've been fooled many times before by trials in which a selected data set, patients look very impressive, and then you randomize it to a group of patients who are very similar, and suddenly it's not as impressive anymore. And the data is, you know, comparable to the chemotherapy arm of the Checkmate 743 trial. So unless, I tell my patients, unless and until there is a randomized trial that compares this to standard of care chemo or chemo plus IO, uh, chemo plus bevacizumab or immunotherapy that I don't feel um, it is appropriate to offer. And I've actually turned patients away who have wanted me to give it. I've said, I do not feel comfortable using it. What do you do, Marjorie? Yeah, I, I haven't used it. I have the same issues with the, the single arm data and it's hard for me to um, invoke a new, entirely new modality without mm -hmm. randomized data. Um, and, and it's hard to extrapolate from, you know, the experience in GBM, mm -hmm. um, which is a completely different process in, in tumor and biology and to use that to substantiate it. So, so it's hard. Um, and I think that a randomized trial in that space would really help uh, answer some questions. I certainly found the response rate in the biphasic and sarcomatoid patient population intriguing because mm -hmm. um, that's a population that we all know doesn't respond as well to just chemo, but I'm not convinced. Um, exactly. I think it's, it's, it's intriguing. Yeah. And I'd certainly put patients on such a trial um, where they're one and, and we had access to it, but, but I have not prescribed it or recommended it. Trial would be perfectly reasonable, but outside of a trial, there are too many other options that have proven data. Yeah. So I know you guys um, touched briefly on the, the chemo IO trials. Hedy, you spoke about the one I'm reading out in Canada with pembrolizumab, and we touched a, a little bit on the um, Dreamer trial with Dervalimab. Are there other sort of things going on um, in this space that that we should keep our eye on in addition to and those two? Stuff in the UK. Yeah, I mean in Europe we we are recruiting extremely well to the beat meso trial. Um, and in this trial, patients are randomized to the control arm of carboplatin and pemetrexid, uh, this time with bevacizumab. Uh, uh, you know, sort of extrapolating from the MAPS-1 uh, data as the um, uh, control arm that we'd like to have um, versus the experimental arm of exactly the same thing, carboplatin, permetrexid, and bevacizumab, 
with the addition of atezolizumab. And this is a, a really nice trial because it not only looks at the addition of chemotherapy together, immunotherapy with atezolizumab together with chemotherapy to see whether there's a benefit and patients then go on to receive maintenance. Um, but it also potentially synergizes with bevacizumab. And we know from preclinical data and in other studies that the combination of uh, Bev and Atezo is potentially synergistic. Of course, we don't know that in, in meso yet, um, but that's the rationale for, uh, uh, for the trial. The trial is recruited extremely well, despite our problems in Europe with uh, COVID is uh, uh, nearing completion of recruitment. And so we're very much looking forward to, um, you know, data in due course uh, uh, on that. Uh, so things are very exciting. I think we Americans are very um, jealous of your ability to accrue so well to trials. And to some degree, it's because in our country, we can obtain so many of these uh, products even off label before they're approved. And then they are also approved earlier. And that's great for patients, but that means that patients have so many other options that they may not necessarily join trials. But I think that trial is gonna provide a foundation for understanding the role of uh, VEGF inhibitors of the abevacizumab in this disease. And um, I think it's very exciting. So when do you expect it to read out? Well, I don't think we're going to get an early result soon. So we're still recruiting. I, you know, we're clearly in 2021. So we're going to be looking at 2022, I think, really. So you expect um, completion by the end of this year, potentially? Yeah, 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 definitely. So, you know, let's let's see where we go. We're not going to, I don't think, get a readout in 21. We're looking at uh, 22 and beyond for a, a read on that. But, you know, one of the things we've been doing in the trial is collecting tissue. So you had to have tissue surplus to go into the trial. Um, so we really do hope that we'll be able to get some really good meaningful biological data as well to help us, you know, really work out which is that group that, that need this four drug combination and which, you know, which group don't. Uh, and then we'll have the really difficult job of trying to figure out where this regime, assuming it's mm -hmm. positive, um, fits into this difficult, um, you know, uh, menu that we now have of chemo, chemo BEV, IO, IO, uh, chemo plus single IO, chemo plus BEV plus IO. Um, it, it could be really very exciting times in meso uh, looking ahead. There was another UK trial that um, was halted in the US and that's the ADIPEG20 study. Um, and that was specifically for sarcomatoid and sarcomatoid predominant tumors that had, at least in early phases, some uh, promising data. It was closed in the U.S. because um, uh, we now had uh, doublet I.O. And, and really many people felt it wasn't ethical to randomize to standard chemo in that setting. Do you think that study is going to be able to complete accrual? I think it's still reasonable in, in, in the UK because we have pre-label access to Nevo-IPI, but it's not available everywhere. And we don't know what our post-label reimbursement uh, will look like, whether it will be for um, all histologies or, or not. So at the moment, it's still very reasonable uh, to recruit in this environment here in the UK based on the landscape of treatment options. Uh, and, you know, I do hope that I do hope that Peter and colleagues do, uh, you know, can complete recruitment, although it becomes much more challenging when you have Nevo-OP available and other competing IO uh, trials in that in that landscape as well. 
I'm concerned also that the DREAMER trial, which is a great trial of DERVA, um, uh, well, plus or minus DERVA with chemo, um, may have challenges accruing in the US. Um, and I suspect that it will principally be in the epithelial uh, patients who are the ones we really need that question answered in, who are offered that study. Um, but I think we'll simply have to see as that study rolls out whether that can accrue. XUS, I don't think it'll have an issue accruing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you both said, it's an exciting time where we never thought we would have so many options that we'd have difficulty picking between them. Um, and I think this represents a lot of exciting advancements and yet sort of fuels the next cycle of questions to ask and, and refinements to make. And I think I agree with the ADI PEG story, it'll be interesting. And then I also think, well, what if the trial's positive? That's then what do I do? <laughs> but it's great to have some and options. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, every, every answer is another question, too. Um, and so I think that having these conversations and, and coming together as a community, you know, in these ways is so important to prioritize certain questions and, and to try to give patients, you know, some perspective of all of the things that we're always considering when we give advice. And then we have, of course, the molecularly targeted therapies, which have been so successful in lung cancer and in other cancers. And now that uh, we've seen what we call precision medicine, the molecular on-off switches, um, being able to be targeted in other diseases, companies are now beginning to um, broaden their approach in mesothelioma. And now we have you know, a number of trials that are targeting uh, the most common mutations, including BAP1 and NF2, um, and then several other smaller trials targeting several of the others. And so where those type of drugs fit in, I think we're still in the early stages, but as we then develop, um, you know, more data with these, we're then going to have to figure out where they go. I think that's right. And actually, one of the really interesting things is, you know, what is the role of checkpoint inhibitors in these well-established molecular subsets. You know, do they have a role or do these other, are these other drugs better? We don't exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can see really we've got multiple strands of research that we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing our genotype-directed research with our TKIs for the right molecular uh, group. We're going to be looking at IO in some subsets. And we're going to be looking at IO combos uh, as well. And, if we, and, you know, there are there's a good rationale for combining some uh, molecular agents with immunotherapy as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think this, this, this really is, is a very exciting area. And, and the key to all of this is delivering on research. You know, we, we just need to make sure that the academic music community continues to collaborate on ensuring that we've got the right trial set up to answer these, these questions coming up. I guess the other thing that we need to think about is certainly in the UK, we're going to have some data coming out um, at some point, not too long away on the role of surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been recruiting um, with the Mars 2 trial for some time now, and we've now completed our recruitment uh, and we're waiting for events to come through. Now, whether this will be 21 or 22 is, is, is difficult to, to, to know, but certainly that's a very large trial which has randomized patients to chemo alone or chemo plus uh, maximal cytoreduction with uh, extended pleurectomy decortication. And that will um, also read out potentially at the same time as our chemo immunotherapy trials are reading out. And that will, I think, really 
potentially confuse matters or potentially streamline matters or at least certainly throw in more um, uh, evidence points to help us work out what the right treatments are for our patients. And then of course, do we need an immunotherapy uh, versus surgery or an immunotherapy plus surgery versus, versus immunotherapy? You know, what are each question creates more questions and each answer creates more questions. So it's a very exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, thinking about how we can, in some cases, we tend to focus on intensifying, at least in the U.S., I think, you know, adding things and doing more and more. And I I think we're reaching a point where we're starting to understand and be able to identify the people where we can actually de-escalate therapy safely and effectively with comparable outcomes, which is tremendous in the context of, you know, a patient's everyday life and quality of life and, you know, burden. It requires a real change in how we think. We're not lymphoma doctors. We're not used to pulling back like that. And yet I agree completely. We need to begin thinking about who needs that aggressive treatment, who, you know, who, for example, some of the germline patients who may have indolent disease for many years, maybe they need less aggressive or maybe they need more aggressive. And so really trying to define who needs what treatment um, is a very exciting uh, era. And then of course, there's a limited number of patients who are actually able to go on trials and a limited number of patients. So how do we choose which are the best trials that should be moving forward um, and make sure that all of the trials are able to accrue? which hasn't been an issue in this disease up to now, but maybe in the future. Yeah. 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 I think that, you know, those were all the the key points that um, I had really wanted to touch upon for today. I don't know if if there was anything else salient you wanted to talk about, but I think we, you guys did a great job covering all of the, the questions that we feel so much from the community. And I think they'll really enjoy listening to what you guys have to say to great experts sharing their, their inner workings of their minds with us, which is always, always a lot of fun to poke around in there. I agree. Well, I, this has been fun and really a nice interaction between the three of us. I have to say I really enjoyed it, and and, and frankly, I'd be very happy to do it again with uh, with with, with uh, uh, all of you. It's okay. it's great to chat to people. It's great to understand that you know we all have the same issues, the same same questions, and great to get everybody's insight to these things. I agree. Absolutely. Thank you both so much.